the book of Acts, the 17th chapter. What city did we leave Paul in last Sunday night? Our brother Paul. Uh Uh-oh. Acts chapter 16. Philippi. Philippi. He was in Philippi. He was in the jail. The Lord delivered him from the jail and delivered to him the jailer and his family. Then he went into the house of Lydia and departed. The last word of Acts chapter 16 is he departed from the city of Philippi. Acts chapter 16 is about the city of Philippi. And from that beginning in that city with Lydia, who was of the city of Thyatira, and the jailer, a church was formed. And so we have an epistle called Philippians. Paul later wrote a letter to those people that had been converted in Philippi, exhorting them to continue in the faith. And if you read the book of the Philippians, it was a good church. It wasn't like writing to the Corinthians. It was a very different letter than the one to the Corinthians. And now we come to Acts chapter 17. And if you were looking at your maps, which you don't need to unless it helps you, we're going to have to move south down through what we currently call Greece to eventually end up in the city of Athens before we get out of this chapter. We have three sections in Acts chapter 17. First of all, Paul is in Thessalonica, and then he is in Berea, and then he's in Athens. We just sang about redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And then in sweeter strains, I'll sing that love. You know, that's the Apostle Paul. If you look through the epistles of the Apostle Paul, you'll see him referring constantly. How many verses do you think you can string together without a reference to his Lord, Jesus Christ? Paul was a lover of Jesus Christ. And he carried the message that Jesus Christ was Lord to all sorts of men, as we shall see in Acts chapter 17. Let us read the first four verses. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Amen. Here the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timotheus come down to the city of Thessalonica. Now I've pointed out many times, and I'm going to continue to point it out, because there's a being that points it out to me, and that's the Holy Spirit. Where does Paul go in every city? And there's a reason that I emphasize that, because we have an emphasis today in so many so-called Baptist churches of a very different form of evangelism than Paul had. When Paul would go into a city, he didn't go to a shopping center and put tracks under windshield wipers. He didn't go down to the honky-tonk, as some evangelists pride themselves on. He didn't go looking for a jail ministry because he had had some success with the jailer in Philippi. He went to the synagogue where men feared God. And they had the scriptures, and they believed the scriptures. They just didn't understand them. And so that's where Paul would go. 
And so the Holy Spirit tells us that in verses 1 and 2, he went to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue, and as his manner was. This was his standard operating procedure. He went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Preaching is reasoning out of the Scriptures. Preaching is not an art form. Preaching is not a an affected speech in order to let you be pleased with a pleasant sound. You would be pleased with a pleasant sound because eloquence by a charismatic speaker done well is a pleasing thing, but it is pleasing to the flesh, not the spirit. Proper preaching is reasoning out of the scriptures, laying out propositions and proving them, further propositions and proving them, reasoning. The, The Lord himself would say, come. Let us reason together, saith the Lord, in Isaiah chapter 1. And so here's how Paul preaches. He goes in and opens up the scriptures. He opens and alleges. To open something is to make it visible and clear and easy to understand. And to allege something is to plead or to argue that thing. He would open up a point to them and then prove it and plead it and argue it as if he was in court, reasoning with them to understand that Jesus must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, that the Old Testament spoke of him suffering, and the Old Testament spoke of him being raised from the dead, and that this Jesus that I preach unto you is Christ. You people are meeting in this synagogue waiting for the Messiah. I announce him to you. He's been here, and he's in heaven now at the right hand of God. And he would prove that from their scriptures. That was Bible preaching. Reasoning out of the scriptures. And it tells us that was that was his manner. That's what he would do when he would go to a city. He would look for people that feared God and had the scriptures, and he would reason with them, showing that Jesus was the Christ. Notice, it's always, Jesus was the Christ. Not a philosophy of life from Ecclesiastes. Not on how to have successful children and get ahead financially from the book of Proverbs, but the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. and Him crucified. Paul said that's all he wanted to know. And we, the, what were the results in Thessalonica? Verse 4 tell us, and some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. They stayed with them and companied with them. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. So we have Jews converted, we have Greek proselytes converted, and then a special class, and of the chief women, not a few, Some of the noble women in that city were converted. So what does that do to the Jews? As we've seen in Acts chapter 13, they are moved with envy when they see success among their people. Using their scriptures, using their Messiah, and preaching that that Messiah had come. We then read the next four verses, that the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. 
the Jews create a riot. And this time, instead of getting the noble people, they get the profane men in the city, the bums, profane men that had no regard for anything, lewd fellows of the baser sort, scum of the city. They riled to create a riot and assaulted the house where they thought that Paul, Silas, and Timotheus were staying. And they couldn't find them. The Lord had preserved them. He had more work for Paul. And there wasn't a jailer in this town to be converted. The jailer was in the last city. Paul needs to move on to the next city. So they didn't find him there. But I want you to notice the testimony as they brought Jason and some of the other brethren to the rulers of the city. They said, these that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. Isn't that a great testimony? The Apostle Paul had already done enough damage in that part of the world that his enemies would say, these that turn the world upside down. Now that's pretty significant. And it's from our enemies saying the effect that one man, the Apostle Paul, could have with a traveling partner, but with the Holy Spirit of God with him, turning the world upside down. And then we read in verse 7, they had another accusation. They said, Jason hath received these teachers, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Amen. That's what I preached to you this morning. Jesus is king. God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Pilate knew Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so this accusation is thrown against the apostles and the brethren there in Thessalonica, even though, other than the fact that they owned Jesus as their king, they were still the most loyal of subjects to Caesar, but for ascribing to him godhood. The Christians would do anything but ascribe that Caesar was God. As far as paying their taxes and being obedient, being willing to serve in the military, and doing other things that governments expect of their citizens, the Christians were very loyal and faithful citizens, as we should be. But they did have another king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, did the Apostle Paul have great spiritual power? Of course he did. Could he perform mighty signs and wonders? Did he sneak out of the city of Thessalonica by night? Yes, he did. That's prudence. Even when you have the blessing of the power of God, there's prudence to exercise. And if we have to run some time and hide, I had brothers asking me this morning in considering our ancient brethren, They asked, would we be willing to give up our homes and to take our children and our wives and simply move away to be able to worship God according to the Scriptures? Without knowledge of what we were going to do for a living or how we would survive, would we do it? Sometime we might have to do that. The Apostle Paul's taking leave again of Thessalonica, trusting the Lord to take care of him in whatever city he arrives in and to have a people prepared for him. And so Paul leaves Thessalonica and comes to Berea. What does he do in Berea, according to verse 10? As his manner was, he went into the synagogue of the Jews. 
This is repeated over and over and over again. He went for those that feared God and who had the scriptures. Because if a man wasn't worshiping with the Jews, what was he worshiping? Something made of gold, silver, or stone. And Paul wanted to find those that worshiped God and feared him and had the scriptures. The Bible tells us about these Bereans that they were a special group of people. And they're set forward as an example to us at all times. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Amen. There was two things that the Bereans did. Now we all know about searching the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, but it also tells us they received the word with a ready mind. They were ready to receive any message that was in agreement with Scripture and that sounded reasonable to them even before they could search it out. They were ready to receive it. They weren't skeptical. They wanted to hear the Word of God. They were ready listeners. Noble men. Then they searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were so. And that is your duty. That is the duty of all saints. To make sure that your pastor is always teaching you the Word of God. If what I say does not match up with the Holy Scriptures, ignore it, reject it, bring it to my attention. Hold fast only that which is good. The Bible says prove all things, but to hold fast that which is good. The Bible tells me to hold fast the faithful word as I have been taught. But remember, it tells me the faithful word, not everything. It is your duty to always measure things by the Scriptures, and these Bereans did that. They searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Do you do any of that? Do you do it weekly? Have you tried it monthly to search the Scriptures and make sure that you are learning and you understand that what's being taught is coming from the Word of God? I try to do it in the pulpit. Remember, they didn't all walk in to the synagogue carrying a manuscript of the Old Testament. They had to listen, and they did with a ready mind, and then as soon as that assembly was over, and they could get up there behind that pulpit and take a look at that Bible, they would search the Scriptures, and they would do it on Monday, and they would do it again on Tuesday, and they'd use their lunch break on Wednesday, and they'd take the afternoon off on Thursday to make sure that what Paul was preaching them was the truth because it was a great message, and they wanted to make sure it was according to the Word of God. You have it in your laps. You have a distinct advantage over these people. But yet, always make sure your pastor, whether it's me or anyone else, only speaks according to the written word of God that's right before your eyes. Now, when you have ready people that search the scriptures, what happens when, when they meet with an apostle who's preaching the truth? Verse 12, Therefore, many of them believed. Also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men... Not a few. So there's more conversions because they listened readily. They searched the scriptures. They saw that what Paul was teaching was indeed the truth, that Jesus was the Christ, and they believed. But here come the Jews again. Verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus stayed there still, 
And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Those Jews from Thessalonica did not like to hear in the news that Paul was now preaching in Berea. So they went down to Berea, stirred up the people there to oppose him in the gospel. Who was behind that? Who's behind all efforts like that to stop a man who is simply preaching the gospel of God? He's not stealing. He's not raping. He's not plundering. He's not trying to overthrow the government. He's not seditious. He's preaching the gospel. Who is behind that? Satan. Satan is out to thwart the gospel and to keep the gospel away from converting men to the truth. And so those same Jews were being used by the devil, a generation that was more filled with devils, according to the testimony of Jesus Christ, than any generation. They were out to hinder the gospel. And so the, the, the brethren there in Berea send Paul away, and he comes down to Athens, and he's alone. And when he sees the city, he immediately gives a message, I want Silas and Timothys here as soon as possible. Now let's read about Paul while he's waiting for them. Athens, capital of Greece, the intellectual center of the world at that time, the center of learning, the center of philosophy, the great names that you've read, you heard about in school which you didn't even need to hear about. Because when it comes to the knowledge of the true God, as one, as one person I read this week called them swine, because of the way they lived. Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and others like them. This is the nation. This is the city. All they did was speculate on philosophy in this place. The marketplace had little porticos, little porches where a different teacher would sit. And you could walk and instead of looking at the cucumbers and then the green peppers and then the iceberg lettuce, you would have an Epicurean, then a Stoic, then an, a follower of Aristotle and of others lined up there in the marketplace. And they would sit there and the disciples would come every day and stand or sit around him while he taught them from his great fountain of wisdom. Remember, we know about the Greeks and we don't need to study Greece very much because the Bible tells us all that we need to know, really. Right. The Bible says about the Greeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22, they seek after wisdom. But what kind of wisdom did they seek? Human reasoning to explain the purpose of man under the sun, which they never found. Right. And which when the apostle Paul knew that that's what they were seeking, he preached Jesus Christ. Amen. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But here we are at Athens. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, verse 16 his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Do you have a spirit like that? Amen. Do you read the newspaper sometimes and have your spirit stirred up? Yes. Do you wish you could say something? Well, Paul, Paul had a vehicle to say something. Sometimes we don't. But his spirit was stirred within him to look in this city and see a temple to Jupiter, a temple, temple to Jove, a temple to all sorts of gods, one after another, altars to all sorts of gods, the city wholly given to idolatry. 
And if you've ever tried to read the Greek gods, you just have to give up after a little while because there's just too many of them. They get confused, as we're going to find out, with a special altar they had in just a few minutes. They couldn't keep track of them all. The city wholly given to idolatry. We have a nation wholly given to pleasure-seeking. Lovers of pleasure more than the lovers of God. Does it stir you up? You know what I preached to you this morning? That Jesus Christ is Lord. On the way home, I passed a viper. I mean, an awesome viper. A bright red viper. Passed me on the road. I could smell the power. I loved its rear spoiler about 30 inches off the rear end of that car. It was an awesome vehicle. And all I could think of is, what a fool! What a fool! And so I got to tell Jonathan on the way home the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I have to wonder, when those people wake up in hell, do they think about polishing their vipers or do they think about driving their vipers? Which do they think about in hell? Jonathan said, a drop of water. Amen. We live in a nation wholly given to pleasure. Does it stir you up from time to time? Does it stir you up all the time? I hope that we can be saved from it. I prayed for that tonight and I pray for it always. That God will save us from that. Because if he lets us go just a little bit, we'll go rushing after it. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. What's his manner? What's Paul's manner in a city? He, He grabs the yellow pages and looks for the synagogue. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. That's the first thing it says. Acts 17, verse 17. And with the devout persons. Who would those devout persons be since he has just said that he was disputing in the synagogue with the Jews? Gentiles, Greek proselytes to the Jews' religion. He's giving us three categories of people here. The Jews in the synagogue and the devout persons in the synagogue because we've got the word with there and in the market daily with them that met with him. Paul went down there to the vegetable market where the vegetables sat under their porches. And Paul went down there to see if he could find anyone that wanted to hear the truth. Because that was the vehicle. You had a vehicle in Athens. And we're working on some vehicles for our church. Because we want our testimony to go out from this church. And I want to do the work of an evangelist where I can. But we want to find those that fear God. We just don't want to cast our pearls before swine. We don't believe in a shotgun approach. We believe in a sniper rifle approach to those that God shows us fear Him. That sounds like a violent form of evangelism. But you all know what I mean. We want to cast the seed before those that fear God and who show a desire for truth. And there's a way to find them today. And it's electronic. Because they all come to us. The only ones that are ever going to find us are the ones that type in words like God, truth, Bible, Jesus. And do you know what I want to have happen when they type in four words like that? 
they learn all about you real fast. And us. May the Lord help us in that endeavor. So he's disputing with three classes of people, and he's in the market daily with those that met with him. This is the first time we've read something like this. Because in Athens, this was a common thing for the people to do. He saw the vehicle, he used it. Verse 18, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. He ran into certain philosophers in the Bible. The Holy Spirit wants us to know two of the sects that were in the city of Athens. The Epicureans. To make it very simple here, the Epicureans did not believe in a creator God, did not believe in judgment, did not believe in life after death. They believe that the goal for life is to experience pleasure, intellectually or sensually. To help you remember an Epicurean, and this is the simplest definition, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. A lover of pleasure. They had them in the year 55. Isn't that amazing? And so today we have a whole society. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? We live in a nation of Epicureans. Pleasure. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Now follow with me about these Epicureans, just because Paul is going to preach a sermon that's very different from what he preached in Acts 13, except it's going to come very quickly to the same conclusion, Jesus Christ is Lord. The Epicureans, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They had no place for a creator God. They had no place for the providence of God in their lives. Their entire life was to be a pursuit of pleasure, to enjoy themselves intellectually and sensually, and no judgment after death. Please, can you keep those things in mind for just a few minutes? No creator God, no providence in, in, in the world, and no future judgment. He also ran into the Stoics. The Stoics, then we use the word now, we understand it because the word Stoic itself contains a definition for us of someone very highly self-disciplined. But the word itself just comes from the names of one of those porches where Zena sat and taught his religion. And to be a Stoic was to be pantheistic. God was everywhere. The whole universe was divided up into matter and force. And the force was God. And the force was everywhere. So there was fate But no providential God, no personal created God, just an impersonal, pantheistic, which means God is in everything, God is everywhere, view of life. Their goal in life was to choose the good. To be virtuous by their definition. They had their definitions of being virtuous. And they were the most self-disciplined of all sects. Very self-disciplined, very temperate. They measured their lives by the good. They always wanted to do what was good and be unmoved by any circumstances because all that was operating in the world was fate. There was no personal God. And so they lived very virtuous lives by their definition because their whole intent was to seek the good. 
versus the evil. I hate running off those little rabbit trails, but I don't take very long on them, and I hope you all understand that. When the Holy Spirit gives me a word like that, I'll pursue it. If the Holy Spirit doesn't, it's a waste of time. But for some reason, the Lord wants us to know the two philosophic sects that were there that Paul's going to address. Because when you look at what he says, he's just battering their philosophies to the ground in a few verses. Certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? They ridiculed the messenger of the gospel, even though they were willing to hear anyone. Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, plural, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. If you were to read a Catholic testimony or a Calvin testimony of Michael Servetus that he didn't believe in the Trinity, would you accept that? Some of you may not even know what I'm talking about. But the enemies of God's people distort their doctrine in order to create a straw man, in order to be able to reject and ridicule their doctrine. And so here we have confusion already. You know that Paul wasn't preaching God's. Paul was preaching that there was Jesus Christ and there was one God and that Jesus Christ was God. But to those poor philosophers of Greece, that was probably too much right there because great is the mystery of godliness. Because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Who knows? Maybe they were so confused they thought that the resurrection was a God itself because they had altars to things like shame. They had an altar where you could go worship at the altar of shame. They had an altar called greed. So maybe they thought that resurrection was a God also. And so they accused Paul of preaching gods. That's what it says. Because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus. Areopagus is a Latin word for the Greek words that we have three verses later, Mars Hill. Areopagus is Latin for the Greek, the hill of Mars, where there was a temple of Mars. Now, Areopagus is a high place in Greece cut out of the stone where men would come together and sit, and the Areopagus was also the name of the highest court in Athens. The Supreme Court of Athens would sit and deliberate in these cut-out stone seats in an elevated stone outcropping near the temple of Mars, on the hill of Mars, which is Mars Hill. Now they hear Paul down in the marketplace in the street. And the place to take someone like that, if you want to put him before the big boys, is to take him upstairs, literally upstairs, to where he would go up and sit before the Areopagus, which is a Latin word for the Supreme Court of Athens, where the most intellectual men of the most intellectual city were assembled. We have our brother Paul, not in a jail this time, working with a man who just wanted to impale himself on his sword. We have our brother Paul on Areopagus being asked, what is this new doctrine you have by the most intellectual men in the world? Isn't this wonderful? Amen. The Lord gets Paul around, doesn't he? Amen. He's converting a Roman jailer just a few verses ago. And now he's at Areopagus. Verse 19, they took him and brought him into Areopagus, saying, 
may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And here the Holy Spirit helps us out with Luke's help. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. These people were just obsessed with hearing or telling some new thing. Wow. Information explosion in 55 A.D. Do we have a nation that looks like the Greeks? Does our nation love to hear new things, new ideas, when there's nothing new under the sun, according to Solomon? There was something new for these people. Paul had it. He's about to give it to them. Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Can you, The Lord got one of his apostles into the middle of Areopagus. And if you've read the whole chapter, brethren, one of these high and holy elders of the Areopagus is going to be converted. Amen. Dionysius. And he's listed in the Bible for you to know that he was converted. And so here Paul has the great opportunity of his life with the intellectuals of his day. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now, that isn't the nicest way to start a sermon when you're dealing with the intellectuals of the world. But I want to point out to you that this was not offensive. This was not greatly offensive to these men. Paul never started a sermon off offensively. He started off gently. His manner was to start off gently because his invitation that we're going to get to over here in uh, verse 31 is pretty impressive. That'll take care of it. But right now he's just starting off gently. We look at the word superstition and we see only unreasoning awe or fear of something unknown, mysterious or imaginary, especially in connection with religion, an irrational religious system. And he's pointing that out to them. He said, I've seen the city wholly given to idolatry. You've got idols everywhere. You're too superstitious. Because as I was passing by your devotions, your work, as I passed by, notice the, word, the preposition for there, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. He's pointing out, you people are too superstitious with your idolatry. You've got all these gods, all these temples, all these strange gods, and yet, to cover all bases, you've got this idol over, you've got this altar over here to the unknown God. You're too superstitious. You need to know something for certain instead of just being afraid and wondering and knowing that you don't know all the gods. It wasn't, it wouldn't have, Listen, they'd have thrown him out right then because they throw him out as soon as he says one word in verse 30. And that's the resurrection. We're not there yet. They're going to end it. They would have ended it if he would have offended them. They knew they, they knew they had a problem. They knew there were too many gods. And so he didn't offend them, but he did not flatter them. Right. He did not flatter them. And he explains why he said it, because he saw that altar to the unknown God. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. 
For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, your idolatrous services of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the Unknown God. You know, the, the Catholics have All Saints Day. It's November 1st, and that's to cover all bases in case they forgot someone that should have been a saint. They try to have a saint for every day and a day for every saint, but in case they didn't get them all lined up, they have All Saints Day on November 1st to cover the rest. And what do we have in Athens? Because they had all these altars and temples, and they weren't sure that they had covered all the deities, they threw in an altar, and historians say there was more than one of these, to the unknown God. Now Paul says these words, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, Bible speculators can go into this verse and try to come out with ignorant elect. I don't go into this verse and come out with ignorant elect. These men aren't worshiping the God of heaven in any way, shape, or form. They don't know what they're worshiping. Why do they call it the unknown God? Because they don't know anything about him. So how are they worshiping the God of heaven? The God of heaven was being worshiped in the city of Athens. And they knew exactly where the God of heaven was being worshipped in the city of Athens. In the synagogue. That's where God was being worshipped. They had just put this as a catch-all altar. It was not put there because they had a heart like Cornelius that was worshipping the true God of heaven. And because they didn't know his name, they put to the unknown God. We do not go into Acts chapter 17 and do that. Paul was stirred because he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. What two philosophic sects are there? Do either of them believe in the creator God of Moses? No. No. They were the Epicureans and the Stoics. That's why we were told that. The God that you don't know about, I'm going to tell you about him. That's what Paul was saying. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship by establishing this altar to an unknown deity, because you don't know if there's any more out there or not, I'm going to tell you about one that you don't know about. That's all he's saying. He's not saying, wow, we have found a great group of unconverted elect. Because these men were not worshipers of God. Now, I've been there, gone there, and done that before. I don't do it anymore. I read the whole chapter, and I understand that Paul is up against a bunch of pagan philosophers. Half of them think that the purpose for living is sensual pleasure, that there is no God, no providence, and no final judgment, and no life after death. The other group thinks that they can earn some security for the afterlife by being self-disciplined. And the only thing that's existing in the universe is fate. And it's everywhere in everything. Those men were not worshiping the God of heaven. And wait till when we when you read Paul's sermon, he doesn't grant them any understanding whatsoever. Except a few couple of their poets that they had conveniently ignored in applying what they had said. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. The God that you don't know about, I'm going to tell you about him. The God that you've tried to cover by simply making an altar to the unknown God, I want to tell you about the true God. Verse 24, And I'm so glad that some of the parents in here took their children to that creation seminar 10 days ago. 
Because I want you to see exactly what Paul does when he's with the philosophers of this world. And he's with two groups that did not believe in a personal creator God, did not believe in God's providence, did not believe in a personal God. Watch what he does. God. This is the beginning of his sermon. The other was just introductory material of where he's taking off from. Paul's very wise. He saw that altar and he used the inscription on it to get started. Oh, they know that there's more gods. and They don't know what to do about that. They're so confused with their multitude of deities and their polytheistic ideas that they've made this altar. I'll use that to introduce my subject, my subject being the God of heaven. God that made the world and all things therein. That's the God we believe in. They didn't have a God like that. They did not have a God like that. His first sentence after his introduction is God that made the world and all things therein. I hope when you pray, you talk about that God. I hope when you're ever with anyone in the world, you will defend creation. You don't have to defend it scientifically. We believe it by faith. And the person you're talking to, if they don't believe creation by faith, you don't need to talk to them any longer. They've proven to you that they're a fool. Right. You say, but that's all the learned wisdom of our educational system in this country. That's correct. It's foolishness. Do not reason scientifically with someone. You'll never win. If a man's converted by your scientific reasoning on the subject of creation, it's not a true convert. Paul would never, ever try to convert a man by the scientific evidence for creation. Ever. That is not a godly, Christian, scriptural approach to creation. Creation is understood only one way, by faith. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. But I'm glad for the children that went and got to hear a little bit of ridicule of the idea that we came from monkeys and that the world's been around for 50 billion years. That confirms faith, and it's a token for good, just like this past week, we run into some Baptist brethren 350 years ago that believe what we believe. That just confirms our faith. It encourages our faith. It comforts us, but it doesn't teach us anything, and it doesn't build faith. Faith, faith, faith rests in what you cannot see. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Science only deals with things that can be seen. If you try to convert a man scientifically by reasoning, you do not have a true conversion. Paul never did that. He just presumes it. And do you know what? If you don't want to believe in a creator God, he wants you to have a nice life. Because that's all that you're going to have that's nice. If you don't believe in a creator God. Because Jesus Christ is coming from heaven in flaming fire to take vengeance on all them that know not God. And that God is the creator God. Paul says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord. Oh, isn't that precious? Seeing that he is Lord, the sovereign ruler. Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. It was common among the Greeks to think that they could confine a God to their temples. And what Paul is saying is, you can't do that to the God that made heaven and earth and is the Lord of everything. You can't confine him to some little building. 
He made everything. This is the God that I present to you. He dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Because here they were in their religious, in their superstitious, idolatrous devotions, offering sacrifices to these pagan deities and bringing things, offerings for the God. And the priests eat it during the, drink it during the night, eat it during the night, and the next day, all the little people think, oh, Jupiter ate it all, or whatever other God they had. And here Paul is saying, the God that made the heavens and the earth, you're not going to give him anything. He created it all. We start with creation. And we build forward from that. He is the sovereign Lord of all that he created. He doesn't need anything. Don't you love the independence of God? Amen. The independence of God. He doesn't need you or me or anything. And Paul preaches that right here. And there are those that think that God needs to save for our sakes. He has chosen to save for his glory. Amen. But he doesn't need anything. He giveth life and breath and all things and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Look at him. He's preaching Genesis. In one clause, he preaches Genesis. God made Adam and from Adam he populated the whole earth. You say, what about Noah? Well, Noah was a little interruption in there where the earth's population shrunk back to eight but the earth was replenished and populated right. by God, creating all men's blood from one man. And so that all the differences you see, you Athenians, who love to observe and analyze everything, all those differences were made by a God who was able to create from one blood, one man, and populate the whole earth. Not only that, you Athenians, this God that I'm telling you about that's created everything, and he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he hath determined the times before appointed. He not only has created all those people and populated the earth with them, but as one kingdom comes up and another kingdom goes down, as there's famine in one place and plenty in another place, as there is war over here and then a war over there, all of those times have been determined by the God who before appointed them. There is a sovereign God of providence that you philosophers have missed. Right. There is a God that created everything and he's the governor and the Lord of heaven and earth and he has created all nations of all men from one man, one blood. They're all the same. He created them. He has determined the times affecting those nations before and thereby his appointment and he has settled the bounds of their habitation. The national boundaries that you're able to see, why there's one group of people there speaking one. We all know this. He summarizes the book of Genesis, the first ten chapters of Genesis, in a couple of sentences. Right. You see the boundary of a nation. They look a certain way on one side of that line, and they look a different way on the other side of that line. They're speaking one language over here with one religion, and this nation comes up and the other goes down. And a couple generations later, that nation comes up and the first one goes down. God's determined those things. That's the God I'm telling you about. He's operating at all times. He's a Lord of heaven and earth. And he's done all these things. He's created all that they should seek the Lord. Men should seek the Lord. All men should seek the Lord. 
He has revealed himself in the creation and he has revealed himself in the providential government of the world. Do you remember when we were in Acts chapter 14 and they tried to worship Paul on the island of Cyprus? Remember? He said, God has filled your hearts with gladness and fruitful seasons, giving a testimony of himself. It's called a witness. His providence. That they should seek the Lord. If happily... They might feel after him and find him. Now, when you're feeling after something, what kind of a person feels? A blind person. person. Very good. Paul's, Paul's explaining how much ability a natural man has in figuring out God. If happily, they might feel after him. Because all, there is an understanding of God to have from the creation. He has an eternal, he has a Godhead and he has eternal power. And he fills our hearts with fruit, with gladness from fruitful seasons. There are some things from observation that you can figure out about God. But instead, these people were speculating without a God. What is our, what is good? What is good? The Epicurean said, eat, drink, and be merry. The Stoic said, virtue, self-discipline. Neither of them looking at the creation to feel, to grope after God. They weren't even trying to find him. And the Apostle Paul says, God has created, God has providentially governed, God has established the bounds of nations that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. It is the power of God that causes all things to consist and upholds all things It is the energy of the great God that sustains the entire universe. We live, we breathe, and we move and have our being in God. And you're all wrapped up in trying to find good without Him. I'm telling you about the God that created heaven and earth. And you're not even groping or trying to feel after Him to seek Him. And He's not very far from us. He's very close. For in Him we live and move. And have our being. And then he invokes a Greek poet. As certain also of your own poets, and it's been several poets wrote this same little expression, for we are also his offspring. Now notice the Apostle Paul. He doesn't quote the Old Testament scriptures. If he quoted the Old Testament scriptures, would that help his case? No. He's just pointing out to them that in their own poetry, they have recognition that men, naturally speaking, look like, act like, and have characteristics similar to some deity. We are the offspring of God. Now, see, watch how he reasons from that little expression that he pulls out of a, can you believe it? It's a hymn to Jove. But Paul uses that little expression. There's a long story. I can, I can entertain you for a long time about where this poet came from, what his name was, where he was born. He lived in a very, he lived in Cilicia near where Paul was born and why Paul might have known, but that's all that's worthless. All that's worthless. He just says, for we are also his offspring. Now Paul reasons from that further. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Now listen, Greeks. 
your own poets have said we're the offspring of God. I've just explained to you that God has created us all, providentially governed us all, has set the bounds of our habitation. We're all created by Him. Every man in the earth, no matter what he looks like, is created by one man that was the offspring of God. Your own poets have said it. Now why do you think you're going to worship Him with gold, silver, or stone graven by man's device? Isn't that powerful? Amen. He preaches the truth. He pulls in their own testimony where they agreed with the truth and he leaves them scratching their chins. Why do we try to worship this creator God? Well, only a few of them thought that. Now he explains a little further. If, if there is a creator God, if there is a God of sovereign providence, if there is a God that is so active in the affairs of men, why don't we know more about him? And the times of this ignorance, God winked at. God didn't care about the Gentile world. He let them have any gods they wanted for a long time. And so Paul tells them that this sovereign God, for a long time, the times of this ignorance, when all you Gentiles didn't understand any of that, and you are making idols of gold and silver and stone to worship this God, those times God just winked at and, let and allowed you to be ignorant and left you and bypassed you and did not give any knowledge. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Amen. And who was bringing the message commanding all men everywhere to repent? Our brother Paul. Our brother Paul, what did Jesus Christ say when Peter, Jesus asked his disciples, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are, de are a defensive device to keep a city safe. Jesus Christ and his apostles were going to be on the offensive. Where was Paul? He was in hell, right here. You want to talk about you want to talk about Satan having power over men's minds? It was in Athens, Greece. Paul is in the middle of hell, and the gates of hell have not prevailed against him because he's about to introduce you to Dionysius, the Areopagite. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is Jesus Lord? Yes, he's Lord. And Paul was preaching him Lord. And the times of this ignorance among the Gentiles God had winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The message of the gospel is, and it does have a message for all men, all men should repent before the holy God and turn from their sins. That doesn't presume that all men have the ability. It's just a furthering of their guilt because they won't. Amen. They won't. But all men should humble themselves before God. All men under the old covenant should have humbled themselves before God simply from looking at the universe and realizing there's a God with eternal power. But they didn't. Instead, they worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. The times of this ignorance God winked at. He's explaining to these philosophers why they'd never heard this before. Remember, they said, this is a new doctrine. 
Yeah, this is a new doctrine for them. And he's explaining why they had never heard it before, because God had allowed them all to be in ignorance. But he says, now God's commanding all men everywhere to repent. And I'm bringing that message because here's why it's important. Because he hath appointed a day. It's a day that only God knows, the day of judgment, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Who is that man? Jesus Christ, the Lord. Jesus Christ is... Why does Paul refer to him here as a man? Because he's about to introduce a subject that exalted the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of power. A subject they couldn't handle. God winked at your ignorance in the past. No more. He's commanding all men to repent everywhere because he's appointed a day in the which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, whereof... He hath given assurance unto all men. Assurance of their salvation? No, assurance of their judgment. Do you all follow that 31st verse? I said earlier in my sermon, the 30th verse. I meant the 31st verse. God has given assurance of the day of judgment. And what is the assurance of the day of judgment? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has shown in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is his man. Jesus Christ is the man that God has appointed. He is God in the flesh. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's exalted far above all principalities and powers because of his resurrection. And all men should have feared before the the knowledge and the word of Jesus Christ because God had proven that he was God's appointed man by his resurrection from the dead. But remember... Down in the marketplace, they heard about that resurrection. They thought it was strange then. Paul mentions the resurrection here in his invitational verse. Verse 31 is the invitation. God's appointed day in which he's going to judge the whole world by Jesus Christ. And he's proven it to the whole world by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They broke into his speech. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Some were interested to hear more, probably with Athenian superstition about wanting to hear every new thing. Others just mocked the resurrection of the dead, not believing in it, because remember, their religion didn't allow for an afterlife if you were an Epicurean. So Paul departed from among them. He's cut off. Did he say enough? Did the Lord keep them quiet long enough? Amen. How be it? Certain men clave unto him and believed. This is in Areopagus. The gates of hell did not prevail against the gospel. Amen. Among the which, among these believers, was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. God saved one of the intellectuals of the city of Athens by opening his heart like he did Lydia in chapter 16 that he attended to the things that were spoken by Paul And he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? Is he your Lord? Your Savior? Your King? Did he create the heavens and the earth? Is he the Lord of heaven and earth? Is there a day appointed in which he will judge the world in righteousness? Of all things seen and unseen. Our secret sins and our known sins. Jesus Christ is Lord. Stand with me, please.